All right, that is what Christmas is all about. Good morning, so good to be with you. My voice is on Christmas vacation. And so, but the Lord is still here and his word is still uh, speaking to us. And so excited to talk a little bit about Christmas this morning, talk about our Savior who is God with us. If you have a Bible, would you turn to Matthew chapter one? That's the first book of the New Testament, the first chapter of that book, Matthew chapter one. And before we continue, uh, let's pray once more. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. Thank you for this place that we get to be together, Lord, to fill our hearts with these joyful thoughts of how you came to earth to be a gift for us, how you are a God who loves and a God who reaches down from heaven, a God who involves himself in the even day-to-day lives of the people of earth. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know something more about you today, something more about your greatness and your power and your plan for this world and for our lives individually. We praise you, Lord, and we acknowledge that you are king of kings and that there's no other way, Lord, by which we could be saved. So be with us this morning and fill us up with joy more and more. In your name we pray, amen. In Matthew chapter one, verse 18, we read these words. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. In most of our favorite Christmas movies, things do not work out the way the main characters expect. In fact, that's almost all Christmas movies are like that. Along the way, they experience a lot of frustration and letdown of one kind or another. Charlie Brown can't quite figure out what Christmas is all about. In Home Alone, the McAllister's meticulous plans are all derailed. Nothing goes right for the Griswold family in Christmas vacation, right? Not the turkey, not the lights, not even the drive to get the tree. And then there's George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. Talk about things not going right. (laughs) Staring out over that bridge, That Christmas Eve night, it seemed his whole life had worked out wrong. But what happens? An angel appears and gives him the true perspective on things. In all of those Christmas classics and others still, by the end, the main characters, often the dad, realize that what they thought they were looking for wasn't wasn't really what mattered most. What they really needed was something else altogether. Matthew's telling of the arrival of the Savior of the world focuses on the man who would become Jesus' adoptive father. His name was Joseph. Joseph was a good man, faithful, willing to do hard things. We'll see some of that in our text this morning. But Joseph's life was not quite working out the way one had hoped. You see, he was a direct descendant of King David, And even if he never actually thought that he would or should be king of all Israel, at very least, wouldn't it be hard to know that you're a member of the royal family and that you'll never be a member of the royal family? Instead of ruling in luxury, what was Joseph? A poor carpenter, subjugated by a pagan empire, an empire which was forcing him to take a long and costly trip back to some random town attached to your ancestors. And so uh, I had never really thought about the fact that Joseph was a son of the king. He was supposed to be an aristocrat, a ruler over Israel. But Joseph would never be king. 
That was to be expected. You know, it had been a long time since Israel had had a king from the line of David. It was unfair, but that was just the way things are. What wasn't expected was how things suddenly also went sideways in his personal life when Jesus arrived in his incarnation. Verse 18 continues and says, after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew knew that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit, and Mary knew that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit, but apparently she hadn't explained her visit from Gabriel to her betrothed husband, Joseph. In the Jewish customs of the time, there was a period of engagement, a year, before the man and wife started living together. But that betrothal period was legally binding. As far as culture and, and, and law was concerned, they were married. They were bound to each other. There were all of these different uh, contract stipulations that had been drawn up about it. And that's why Joseph is going to be called Mary's husband already in the very next verse. If you wanted out of a betrothal, you would have to officially divorce. Mary being pregnant was a big problem, culturally speaking. Uh, it was a great, 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 great turn of events for the rest of us. But culturally speaking, this is a big problem. It would absolutely scandalize their families and communities. And Joseph undoubtedly loved Mary. I think we can determine that from what we see moving forward. But he wanted to marry her. But now, if he wanted to be faithful to God's law, he had a duty to either divorce her quietly or to bring her to stand trial before the Jewish leaders for being pregnant out of wedlock. Very different time. You see, under the law, those were Joseph's only two options. There wasn't a third option for him if he wanted to do what the law asked him to do. Verse 19, so her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. How can you divorce someone secretly? You can't. It just means quietly. He was going to, you could at the time go to just two witnesses and work out the annulment of the contract, but obviously everyone would know because they knew that they were engaged and these were small communities. And so everybody would know he was just trying to do it as quietly and graciously as possible. Joseph was a remarkable man, a man of care and character. We see on the one hand that he was not going to ignore God's law, even if it meant having to part ways with the woman he loved. In this moment, he demonstrates that his love for God was stronger than his love for Mary. And that's a commendable thing. When he was put to a moment of decision, he said, as for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord even though that would bring scandal upon himself, even though that would bring heartbreak upon himself, he was willing to do what God had asked. But it's clear that he actually did love Mary. There's no resentment here. There's no vengeance or anger or, or frustration here. Even though she seems to have totally violated their relationship and marriage contract and social convention and everything else, it was very important to Joseph that she not be disgraced publicly. And so what did he choose? He chose the quiet option that saves face, not for him, saves face for Mary. 
Joseph examples for us the fact that real righteousness always includes mercy. Always. Joseph had these two options. He could make a legal example out of Mary and have a big show trial. Make sure everybody knows that he didn't have anything to do with it. And instead, he measured his righteousness with mercy. In that way, Joseph's righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And it's a beautiful little foreshadow of exactly the same way Jesus would treat the woman caught in adultery in in John chapter 8. He didn't look at that woman's sin and say, it's okay, it doesn't matter. He says, no, you need to go and sin no more, but I'm not going to condemn you. He said, you have a choice here whether you're going to repent and and turn toward God or whether you're not. And so uh, what a beautiful set of pictures there. But the law was the law. He had to divorce Mary. And so Joseph started making arrangements to break off his relationship with his fiancée, to annul their contract. I can imagine his heart was absolutely crushed. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. If I were him, I can imagine I'd be praying something like, Lord, what am I supposed to do? You know, I can't live out my royal blood right. I'm a poor laborer. I'm getting pushed around by the Roman Empire. I'm trying to carve out a little life for myself and start a family with what small prospects I have. I'm serious about following the law and honoring you as God is my life, and now my marriage can't happen? That's how I would have been praying. Verse 20 says, But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So we're not told whether Mary tried to convince him about her visit from Gabriel or not. But we see that he was thinking a lot about the situation. He didn't act emotionally or in haste. He considered the situation. And he made what he thought was the best decision he could make. But the problem is he didn't have all the information that he needed to make this life decision. He didn't know the levers of providence that were in motion. And so the Lord comes and reveals more to him so that he can make the actual right decision. And so before Joseph can make his best decision, the Lord changes the situation. He opens his eyes. He reveals what's actually true beyond human understanding. In all those Christmas movies, there's always a pivot point, right? George Bailey meets Clarence. Charlie Brown hears God's word from Linus. Kevin McAllister talks to the scary bearded neighbor with the snow shovel, right? There's always that pivot point. How interesting that the angel called Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Oh, now I'm the son of David. A lot of good the family name had done him so far in life. But we see that God knows what is true about you. God installs eternal value in you. God sees the culmination of his work in you. And even if the rest of the world passes you by, God says, no, 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 I've decided things about you, things that are true. It didn't matter to Rome that he was a son of David. It didn't matter to the innkeepers of Bethlehem that he was a son of David. But it mattered to the Lord. And the Lord God had not forgotten Yeah, things were a lot different for Joseph than they were for David and Solomon, but the Lord had not forgotten. 
In fact, the Lord had decided to give Joseph a personal, important, hand-tailored part to play in the drama of redemption, specifically for that man. And this is what God wants to do in the life of every single one of his children. Your life may not be working out according to what your five-year plan was or the dream that you had when you were a little boy or a little girl, but God has a providential plan that is shaking up the cosmos and displaying his grace and glory and power and kindness and wonder to all the powers in all the heavens. That's what the book of Ephesians says. And he's written a part for you to play in it. He says, here's what I'm doing to put on display my greatness and my power and my grace and my glory. I want to show all the cosmos, all the powers in all the heavenly places who I am and what I can do. And I've written a cast of players to show the world, to show all of history, to show the universe what God is capable of. And each one of his children has been cast to play a specific part. The angel clears up where Jesus came from, but man, things were still gonna be sticky. Joseph was being asked to live a sacrificial life for the rest of his life a life of social embarrassment. We get a little whiff of this later on in the Gospels. Joseph has, it seems, passed on already. But sometimes the Pharisees would uh, love to bring up in front of Jesus that, you know, hey, we consider you illegitimate, by the way. And so they would live a life of social embarrassment because everybody knew how the story started. Everybody knew that Mary was pregnant before they were officially married. And that was a big deal in this culture. And the angel comes to Joseph and he says, hey, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, but that's gonna have some ramifications moving forward. For the rest of your life, you're going to be marked by this work of God that he wants to do through this family a work we're all thankful that they did, but a work that uh, left a grease stain in a sense, right? You change your oil, you're gonna come out, even if you're really good at it, you're gonna come out with a couple of grease stains, right? On your hands, on your favorite shirt, on, you know, whatever it is. And so a life of social embarrassment is what God was asking Joseph to sign up for. People would whisper everywhere they went, his whole life would now be oriented not around his own dreams or around his own greatness, but instead his whole life would revolve around this job that God had given to Joseph and Mary to do, raise and nurture the Messiah. That's the job. Man, how could I possibly do that job even right? Even if I wanted to, Lord, I can't do it. And the Lord's like, you can do it because I'm gonna help you do it, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to follow me and do what I'm asking you to do. It's one of the most important jobs that I you know, want to give out. But it's going to be a, a life where people snicker and people gossip and you feel constantly inadequate and you're wondering, is, is, am I qualified? No, you're not qualified to raise the son of God, but you're going to do it anyway. The angel continued in verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You are to name him. 
It's more common during this time for the mom to name the child, but he said, no, Joseph, you are to name him. And it reveals the fact that Mary had an incredible, unique calling placed on her life. She would bear the Christ into the world. Jewish mothers for millennia had hoped to be the one chosen by God to be a part of this work. And so on the one hand, Mary had this monumental job that she's remembered for, but she would need a lot of help, just tons of help day by day. And the Lord expected Joseph to serve with her in this calling, in this endeavor. He couldn't do what she was being asked to do, but he could do things like help and support and provide and protect and lead and partner with her in raising the Messiah in their home. So it's interesting that everybody has a different calling, right? There's a different job. There's a different, um, you know, role to play. We think about the stories in Matthew 1 and in Luke 2, such an interesting cast of characters, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and all of the people surrounding that situation who aren't listed together, but each one having this important role to play. We think of a lot of times casting as, well, who's the important character? Who's, which actor's name is above the title? And you hear these gross stories about, you know, important, you know, self-important actors arguing about whose name comes first on the poster and size of the font and all that kind of thing. And so we think about casting of, well, this part is important and this part is not important. And we realize, though, that, of course, every part is significant. Not every part is as prominent. Not every part is as visible. Not every part is as easy. Every single one is important. We were watching a movie the other day with the kids, and one of the kids said, there was a, it was a big scene with a lot of extras. And they said, are all those people like working for the movie? And we said, yeah, they're called extras. And they said, well, that's, that's a lot of people, and they have to pay all of them? We said, yeah, they pay all of them a little bit. Well, that's a lot. We said, yeah, but if you don't have those people, the movie doesn't work. You, 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 know, you can't watch a battle movie if there's no armies, right? <laughs> And so there was a part for each one of them to play. And so the angel comes to Joseph and he says, hey, you're going to be integrally involved in this process. You're not just a guy who also lives in the house with Jesus. You're going to name him. You're going to be involved. This is a calling on your life together with Mary. His name would be Jesus. Scholars explain that depending on whether you're studying how the name sounds in Hebrew or what the origin of the word means The name means something like he will save or Yahweh is salvation or oh, save Yahweh or Yahweh saves he and not another. I think we get the message there. This is who Jesus is. The little baby in the nativity set that you see walking out today or the one that you have set up in your home or or wherever, that little baby in a manger is God himself come in human flesh, fully God and fully man. And he came for one reason, not because it's such a nice time in first century, first century Palestine to you know, walk and move around and try not to get leprosy. <laughs> he came for one reason, and that's because someone had to die for the sins of the world. Someone had to pay the fine 
that every single one of us owes for all the wrongs we've done and the wrongs done to us. You see, the Bible explains that disobedience to God, rebellion against God, failure to be as perfect as God is called sin. And the wages of sin is death. And God is a perfectly holy, just judge. He can't overlook sin. He can't sweep it under the rug. And of course, we don't want him to. When we hear about, you know, presidents or politicians or judges sweeping injustice under the rug, it boils our blood because that's wrong. And we're people who do unjust things all the time. But even we say, well, that's obviously wrong. You can't just overlook it. You can't just, how did those charges get dismissed? How is that person not in jail? All these sort of things. And we get so upset about it. Well, God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous. And humans are, are full of rebellion and full of, of sin against God. And so he says, okay, I have to judge sin and the wages of sin is death. And so somebody has to die because of the sin of the world. And so God said, I want to take care of this for humanity. I want to pay the fine that every human being owes so that I can deal with this problem. And we see here, even in the name Jesus, he saves and not another. There is just one Savior, one Savior, one Rescuer. And we are a people who need rescuing. Who will rescue humanity from our downward spiral? Who's going to save us from our failures and mistakes and sins? The average Christmas movie, you know, it's usually pretty vague in the end. It's, you know, togetherness or family or just not being so uptight about things, right? That's what makes Charlie Bound Christmas so good. They show the world year after year. No, it's Jesus Christ is, is what Christmas is all about. But, you know, you think about your favorite Christmas movie. On average, the ending is just sort of a vague, warm and fuzzy, Right? But this is what I always like to do, ruin movies for myself and others. <laughs> and point out the fact that the Griswolds are going to have a terrible Christmas next year too, right? Because there's no change. They get through the police and the SWAT coming to their house, but next year they're the same people, selfish and angry and focused on themselves instead of others. The McAllisters, prove it. They're not any better in Home Alone 2. They're still yelling at each other. They still hate each other. They still are, can't stand being around each other. And you get through Home Alone 2 and everybody's all warm and fuzzy at the end. And what happens? It's the very last part of the movie. The dad's screaming angry at his kid again, right? Those vague, just be nicer messages. It doesn't work. It doesn't hold water. That's not how lives are changed. That's not the real answer. And we all know it. In our heart of hearts, whether you're a Christian here or not, you know that there's something that needs fixing, something that needs saving, a hole that needs to be filled. God knows it. In fact, he knew it before we did. And he came and made a plan while Adam and Eve were hiding from him. They had just brought sin and death and suffering and ruin into the world. And God said, I will go down. I know that they need saving. They don't realize it yet. 
And I'm not only going to go down to them in grace and love and mercy and try to embrace them, I'm going to go with a whole plan. The Lord God made a plan. His plan was to come himself, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, die a death he did not deserve, rise again the third day. This, and only this, was the one way that God could bridge the gap between a perfect holy God and sinful man and reconcile us back to himself. Matthew peels back the curtain to show us that this has been God's glorious plan of salvation all along. Look at verse 22. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. They'll name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. What God promises, he will do. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you should know that it's a book full of promises for God's people. And he doesn't keep some of them. He doesn't keep as many as he can. He keeps all of them. He will do what he says no matter what. And that's why and how Joseph and Mary didn't need to be afraid. He said, hey, don't be afraid. That didn't mean that things wouldn't be hard. In fact, they'd be very hard. In just a few verses, you'll see that Joseph and Mary are running for their lives. I've never had to run for my life out of, out of the country and relocate somewhere overseas. Joseph and Mary did, with no money, no resources, no anything like that. But God is a God of promise and presence. Not presents, though he loves to give gifts, and so it's a good thing to give gifts at Christmas. Why? Because God is a gift giver. He loves to give gifts. But God is a God of promise and presence, his presence, being with us. That's his desire, even this morning, to be with us. Coming into the earth in his incarnation, he said, hey, I'm the eternal God. I hold everything together in the palm of my hand, but I've got a new name that I would love for you to use for me. Emmanuel, God with us, God with you. You ever try to give yourself a nickname? Doesn't really work, does it? God said for hundreds of years, Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the words of Matthew, and, 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 he, and he says, hey, I have a new name. I, you know, I've, I exist eternally, but I have a new name I'd like you to start using, Emmanuel. That's how I want to be defined. That's how I want you to know me, God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, did not have relations with her until she gave birth to a son and named him he named him Jesus. So Joseph is a man of faith in action. Once God spoke, it was time to do. It was time to respond to what God had revealed. He named him Jesus. This would be the first of three dream meetings with angels that Joseph would experience. After each one, he did exactly what the Lord asked him to do. But there were many, many other days without angel visits. And on those days, Joseph also did what the Lord had asked him to do. It must have been so hard. If you're a parent here this morning, I'm guessing that you, in some part of your heart, you know, whether you have a more meager Christmas or a very lavish Christmas, some part of you always wishes you could buy one more thing for your child, you know. That, that there wasn't a limitation on what you could give them. 
And I, it must have been so hard to know that you have the king of kings in your care, but you can't give him a palace. There wouldn't be many nights of feasting at Mary and Joseph's house. There were no royal robes or grand parades. When it was time to present him at the temple, they couldn't even bring a lamb. That's what you were supposed to bring, but we see that they bring a pair of doves. That's what poor people bring. And you realize that, like, yeah, I have God, I have God incarnate. I have the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who's going to bear my sins away. I don't even have enough money to bring a lamb. Like the, this guy over here, this nobody kid gets a lamb today. <laughs> I brought a couple of birds. But honestly, think about that. Think of how inadequate they must have felt. But don't you feel adequate, Christians, as the Lord asks you to be his ambassador on the earth, light in the world, salt of the earth, those sorts of things? Jesus didn't make him feel bad about that. Presenting him at the temple, he wasn't like, birds? Where's the, where's the lamb? He didn't do that. Because that's not what the Lord cared about. He cared about them as individual people. He loved them. Called Mary, he's like, you're highly favored. And you know what? Each and every person here is highly favored in the eyes of God. Just the three of them for a while, and then siblings would come later. They lived small, lived far away from home for a while. It must have felt like things weren't working out the way that you wanted. Their life must have felt small and insignificant or meager in so many ways. But what God cared about and what God wanted for this family was working out just fine because he was the one accomplishing it by his own power and grace. What God desired was, was happening. And God's grace and God's strength and God's wisdom was flowing through this family. We learn later in the New Testament, it talks about how Jesus learned obedience from his parents. They, they, they were able to do what the Lord asked them to do because he empowered them by his grace and because he was with them. He didn't ask them to do it and then say, hey, I'm gonna show up and check the ledger at the end of the year and you know things better look good. He said, no, I'm gonna be with you. And that's how the book of Matthew ends. Jesus saying to all of us, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And we read in the book of the Revelation that when God's people gather together in a church meeting like this, he says, I am with you in a special way. I walk in the midst of the candlesticks. Not a lot of spaces between the rows here, but the Lord is walking in our midst because he's God with us. Now, you and I are not called to foster the Messiah. He has other callings for you and me. We discover them by loving him and being in his presence and hearing his word and doing what we've been told. We join in his magnificent kingdom cosmic work as we relinquish control of our lives' decisions and instead allow him to direct and propel and move us through this walk we're on with him. If you feel like things are not working out, look to God's gift, his son, his savior, who is still with you, still Emmanuel even now, writing you the most important part you could ever play. That's what God's desire is for each and every one of you Christians here this morning. And for those of you who are not Christians, who are not born again, maybe you don't know what that means. Well, Jesus at one point said, 
hey, you must be born again. That means you must turn from your sin. Acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is. Acknowledge that he is the only way out of sin and death in the grave. Being a good person is not going to get you into heaven. That, That trying to be better than the person next to you is not going to cancel out the debt that you owe. You owe a debt that you can't pay. And it's not because we're good and you're bad, it's that we're all bad. We're all sinners. There's none righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. Those of us who are Christians who've been born again, we have just recognized that we can't pay the debt. And we believe what God's word says, that Jesus Christ came, the God-man, God himself in human flesh, came and said, I will pay the, the debt that you owe. I will die so that you can live. I will be your substitute. And if you're willing to believe the Lord Jesus, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. This is God's plan. This is God's desires. This is why, this is why Christmas happened, because God sent his son because he loved the world so much that anyone who would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. There's no magical incantation that you have to say. There's no, you know, uh, you know, weird ritual you have to perform. It's all done in the heart. You can choose right here, right now, to call out to God and say, God, I believe. I maybe don't understand everything, but I believe. You think Joseph understood everything? He did not. You say to the Lord in the quiet of your heart right now, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I am imperfect, that I am lost and in need of rescue. And I don't understand everything, but I believe that you, Jesus, really are God and that you are Messiah. And I want to turn away from my sin and turn towards you and I want to receive your salvation. Then you will be saved. Believe, that's what's asked of you. And after believing, the Lord will set you on a path, a very different path than your life would have taken if you didn't believe. A path that does require some hard things. We see that in the example of Joseph and in so many others in the Bible. But today, if you're not a Christian, what God desires for you and from you is belief. That you would turn to him and say, God, I, I recognize that these things are true. And I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. I want to receive you as a gift this Christmas. At one point in the Bible, it says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that gift is salvation. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Can't buy it. Can't trade for it. It's a free gift. Lay hold of it today if you've never done so before.